Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, on a special edition of Lumpen Week in Review, we present interviews with two of the Democratic candidates for Illinois governor, Alderman Amaya Pawar and Chris Kennedy. All this plus the Trump Diaries, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for July 14, 2017. Radio Free spoke to Chris Kennedy about his bid for the Illinois governor's mansion. Kennedy spoke about education, a progressive income tax, and the challenges facing our state. This interview is part of a series of Lumpen interviews held with the 2018 Illinois gubernatorial candidates. Radio Free airs every Tuesday drive time at 4 p.m. Welcome back to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpen Radio. We are listening to Radio Free Bridgeport, and we have a special edition of our show, we have our second interview of, with the Illinois gubernatorial candidates. We are joined today by Chris Kennedy. Thank you very much for joining us, Chris. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. So, you know, as we get started, we just wanted to give you an opportunity to tell listeners uh, and, and folks in Illinois why you've, you've decided to run and, and what your, your candidacy is about. You know, we have the greatest out-migration of high school and college-age kids of any state in America, with the exception of New Jersey. The children who live here, who grow up here, want to move away. They're too well informed. They have all sorts of sources of information. They know our state is on the wrong track, and if they don't get out now, they may never be able to get out. I, I, I love this state. I've been here for over 30 years. I want to stay here the rest of my life, and I want to be surrounded by my kids. I think it's the same hope, the same dream well, that every family has for for their own children, for their neighbors, for the communities that they grew up in. And if we don't turn things around, we're not going to be able to achieve those goals. What do you see as the number one issue driving? uh, What what do you think is the most important thing driving this campaign and and you think is, is facing Illinois right now? I think the biggest challenge that we face in Illinois is the challenge related to the poor educational outcomes that we're providing to public high school students in our state. Statewide, about 75% of the kids who graduate a public school are not what's called college ready. That means they can't go to community college. They can't go to trade school. They can't go to university without remedial education. That means that for them, the, the, the process of getting a college degree, it may take longer, it may be more expensive, and there's a much higher likelihood that they'll never be able to do that means that 75% of the kids are going to have a heck of a challenge being part of the 21st century American economy. They're going to have a hard time becoming taxpayers. They're not going to have their shoulder to the wheel with the rest of us. And when we have those terrible outcomes for the next generation, we have a terrible outcome for our state. Uh, Mr. Kennedy, I'm wondering if you could tell us, um, does that mean that you want to support Uh, The teachers union here in Chicago, do you want to provide more funding for public education in the city of Chicago, or do you want to equalize the kind of funding levels that the suburbs get uh, compared to the city? I I think those are important choices, but I don't think that's the critical issue. I think those choices are a distraction from the fundamental issue which keeps us from being successful in the state. That fundamental issue is the idea that Unlike almost every other state in America, we pay for our K through 12 program, our uh, our, our uh, grade schools, our junior highs, and our high schools with property taxes predominantly. No other state has exactly the same system that we have, and most states have better outcomes. You know, in America, uh, the rich used to live among everybody else, but today the rich live near the rich, the poor live near the poor. There's been great economic segregation. So unless you're in one of the wealthiest communities in the state, your school will never have access to the tax base necessary to properly fund it. And that underfunded school will have undereducated students graduating from it. And that's what's happening now. We need to get rid of the property tax system and abandon it largely and then replace it with with state funding and And by doing that, we kind of have the great outcomes that they have in places like Maryland or Massachusetts. But there's a lot of resistance to abandoning the property tax system. 
The property tax system that you mentioned has divided our state largely and in, in, amongst another a, a bunch of issues with north and south. How do you plan on, on bringing together uh, the state north and south? I don't, I don't think that, uh, th- that this idea should divide us. I think it should unify us. The exact same issues that are happening in southern Illinois are the same issues that are happening on the south side of Chicago. The same issues that are happening on the west side of Chicago are the same issues that are being faced by western Illinois. In the counties outside of Chicago, they have no access to the incredible tax base that is present in the suburbs right around the city. So their kids will never be as well prepared to compete with the kids in the Chicago area, in the Chicago suburbs. More importantly, they won't be able to compete with kids in other states. We, we should not have this system. Anybody who's looked at it for more than 10 minutes, every state rep, every state senator, all know that we need to abandon the system and replace it with a property or with an income tax system, a progressive one that allows us to fully fund our schools. So whether you grow up in Perry County or you grow up on the west side, your kid has an equal chance to be successful. And we don't have that right now in our state. That actually brings up the question I was going to ask you. Do you support a progressive income tax system in this state? And there's been a lot of resistance to that, obviously. Uh, the current governor is very resistant to that, thinking it's anti-competitive and make people move out of the state. Do you think that's something that's actually possible and doable if you were to win the race for governor? I, I, I think a, a, a progressive tax um, it is, is critical to fully funding our schools. Um, but I don't think the resistance to that uh, income tax-based funding of schools is the resistance is not coming simply from our libertarian governor, Governor Rauner. It's coming very strongly for from other elected officials. F- officials in our state, our state reps and our state senators are often reluctant to support uh, abandonment of the property tax system because it's the source of their income, it's the source of their wealth. A lot of them act as property tax appeals lawyers on the side. They're making money off of a system that's crushing our children. They're creating wealth for themselves off of a system that's destroying our state. They don't abandon that system because while it's good for the state, it's not good for them personally. We need to understand what's going on here, and we need to require our state reps and our state senators to take an oath that they won't have a outside job and a source of outside income that's oppositional to the interest of the body they were elected to serve. That's fancy language for a much more simple idea, which is that the state reps and state senators need to be banned from having conflicts of interest. They shouldn't be property tax appeals lawyers. If they were free of that conflict, if they were truly free, then they could vote. They could vote their conscience. They can't do that now because they're conflicted. We need to free them. We need to free them of that conflict by giving them a ban, a statewide ban, making them live under the same constraints, the same rules that our congressmen and our United States senators are forced to live under. Let's just, let's do what we do at the federal level on the local basis. If you get rid of the dirty money in politics, you'll get rid of the dirty politicians in government. Uh, Speaking of conflict, uh, what are your thoughts about the past few years of having no budget passed in the state of Illinois? What do you think the main issues are with that? People accuse both Madigan and the governor uh, for maintaining this kind of uh, game for way too long. Well, I I think that there's lots of blame to go around. Having said that, I I think that back when Governor Rauner was elected, most people who voted for him were were voting for somebody they thought was a pro-business, middle of the road, socially liberal, Republican, out of the uh, traditions of one of the great Republican parties anywhere in the world here in Illinois. That's not what we got. What we got is a right-wing libertarian someone who doesn't believe in government, somebody who thinks that, well, thinks that if you have mental illness, it's because you're not tough enough. If you're sick, 
It's your fault if you're poor. It's because you didn't work hard enough. He has no sense of the communal nature of life. I'm lucky. I'm one of 11 children. My wife is one of five. She's got, I don't know, more than 30 first cousins. I've got more than 50. When your family expands, your world expands. And if you're lucky, your heart expands as well. And you become familiar with people who drug addiction or mental illness or other disabilities that make a free market economy of a a threat to their lives. And he thinks that threat is okay. In fact, he's pushed those people out of our state. Last year, the last measurable year, the state of Illinois became smaller and it became richer. Household income jumped by 10%. It jumped by 10%, not because the two of you fellas there are making more money or the rest of us are making more money. It jumped by 10% because we pushed the poor out of our state. Anybody with a disabled kid, anybody with uh, elderly parents, anybody who needed home health care realized that the 800 social service agencies were going to be under attack and they needed to move somewhere to another state where they could receive proper care, humane care, dignity. Chicago has been in the, high, uh, the headlines all across the globe, and, and the story has been about violence in Chicago. What do you think the governor's role is to help with this? You mentioned the budget impasse and its effect on social programs and its secondary and tertiary effects on, on, on that. Do you, do you have a view on, on what the governor can do here in Chicago? I think the, the governor um, abandoned the role of government in solving the uh, violence program in Chicago. He cut off funding for programs, after-school programs, anti-violence programs, programs that have proven to stop the spread of violence once it starts. He's cut and threatened those programs repeatedly because he wants to wound government. He wants to make it incapable of acting. That's sort of the libertarian dream come true. If you can't eliminate government, cripple it. And he has done his best to cripple it. The last couple of days have been a confirmation of that strategy as he's attracted new team to the governor's office to run the state. Uh, again, right-wing libertarians who talk about liberty, talk about liberty, talk about liberty all the time. When you hear someone talk about liberty, remember what they're saying is, I got mine, and I don't care if you ever get yours. They're no longer interested in creating the necessary tools to make the American dream a reality, to create upward economic mobility. We have the tools to stop the violence. We know how to do it. It's been done in other cities. They figured it out in New York. They figured it out in Los Angeles. We can stop the violence if we wanted to, but we don't have the political will to do so. And again, that property tax system that funds so much of our government is at the root of all evil. And it is at the root cause of the violence issue here as well. Speaking of upward mobility, Mr. Kennedy, one of the biggest causes of bankruptcy in America happens to be spiraling health care costs. Currently, the Republicans in the Senate are trying to pass through a bill that would strip uh, many Illinois residents of what is known as the ACA or Obamacare. Uh, there is a vote coming on that on Thursday. Governor Rauner has been curiously silent on the issue, even though, as I'm sure you're well aware, I think it's a million Illinois residents get their health care through the exchanges. As governor, uh, should the Republicans succeed. What would you propose as a replacement for Obamacare? And more to the point, what have you done right now to try to get the message to people about whether the ACA should be preserved or, or gotten rid of or fixed? Well, I, I think it's really important to continue the message that you just put out, this notion that nearly a million people in our state will be affected, most of them losing coverage. Um, our Medicaid uh, program will be devastated and uh, the CHIP program will be destroyed. I mean, I think half of all kids in rural areas now get their health care coverage through those programs. The idea that we would put them at risk, that we would threaten them, is outrageous. The fact is, the governor of the state of Illinois has the ability to influence the outcome of every uh, congressional race in the state and can play a big role in the Senate races as well. This governor, with his billions of dollars, can play an even larger role as He's proven repeatedly. 
I don't know why he's not using that resource of the governor's office and his own personal resources to to do something great for our state. He can go to those congressmen, he can go to our senators and say, you need to battle for us on this issue. You need to make sure that that Medicaid dollars, those chip dollars continue to come to Illinois. And if you don't do that, if you don't do a better job as a congressman or as a senator, I'm gonna help primary you, I'm gonna fund your opponents, and I'm gonna make your life miserable. I think that's the natural place for a great governor to play. A governor who has leadership qualities that sees that role in government as the leader of the entire state and not somebody who's amassed great wealth and simply wants to keep everyone else's hands off of it. And that's what I think we have now with a libertarian disguised as a Republican. Lots of people know about your history in education and as a businessman and, and you know, there's been a lot of stories about your philanthropy. Tell us a little bit about something that you listeners might not know about yourself or your family. Um, well, let's see. I was born on the 4th of July. <laughs> and, and, and happy birthday. Someone who has never forgotten that fact. Uh, that would be my oldest sister, Kathleen, because she also was born on the 4th of July, and she continues to hold me responsible for wrecking her 12th birthday party. <laughs> you know, I'm interested in what uh, what makes you think that you would be a better candidate than the other um, uh, persons out there trying to get the Democratic nomination. Well, I, I think the notion of being a better candidate is one thing. I think being a better governor is another. I think I have a unique set of skills that I've honed and developed over the course of my lifetime that makes me uniquely qualified for the job of governor of the state. I've been involved in a series of campaigns here in Illinois. I know the state politically. I've served as chairman of the board of perhaps the most important institution in the state outside of government, which is the University of Illinois. I ran the organization, the Merchandise Mart, which I don't know if you know much about it, but we ran 90 trade shows a year. I knew the biggest manufacturers and the smallest mom and pop stores all around the Midwest. And I came to understand in 30 different vertical markets what makes those different industries work, what supports them and what threats threaten their existence in our state. I think the combination of those things, the ability to work well with others, the notion that every day in my job at the Mart and around the country, we negotiated with 10,000 exhibiting companies every year. Each year we needed to bring them back, so we had to provide enough service and great product here to keep our customers and clients. I know how to negotiate, I know that, well, Compromise isn't surrender, that negotiation isn't extermination, that when we work with others, it's a sign of strength and not a sign of weakness. And I think that's what we need in our state at this time. I have a very clear vision of how to rebuild our economy, to model our success after the success that's been enjoyed by places like Boston, Massachusetts, and Austin, Texas, Silicon Valley, California, the area around Pittsburgh and around uh, Carnegie Mellon and Pitt, even Akron, Ohio, that all of those places and Research Triangle give us give us a great roadmap of the of the way to use our incredible higher educational resources and our and our research labs like Argonne and Fermi to rebuild the economy of our state. I think the combination of all of those things uh, create a compelling story that that I think is comforting in this way, that people know what's in my heart. They know my background. They know where I came from. Many people will feel like they know my family and my values, and they know that in my decision-making, I will act in the, uh, on the, with, with integrity and with the notions of Catholic social values, this idea of solidarity, that we're all in it together, the notion that we need to have an option for the poor, the idea of subsidiarity where we provide services at the closest and decision-making at the, the, at the point closest to the individual, and that we can, if we work together, 
restore the promise of our country, the idea of endless upward mobility, uh, the land of the free, this idea that anybody can make it, and we can make the American dream the dream for all Americans. Mr. Kennedy, there was an estimate put out. You talk a lot about education as a way to get out of poverty. An estimate recently was put together, I believe, by BEZ that said to help stop the violence in the city of Chicago and to get 30,000 people into higher education, it would cost $1.1 billion. There's another estimate that said lifting up Chicago's troubled public schools would take an extra $7 billion. I wanted to ask you, is that realistic in this day and age when we keep hearing about how our city is broke, our state is broke? How do we, how do we change that paradigm and what would you do to enforce that kind of effective change in an era when all we keep hearing about is austerity? Well, I'm not familiar with that study, but I think a better question is, was it 30,000 people? Is that what the number was? Yeah, 30,000 people. 30,000 people. Yeah. With um, the support and social services and stuff like that. So was that like 300 grand a person or something? Something like that, yeah. Um, I, I think a, a different question is, you know, what is the cost of not doing that? What is the cost of, of creating 75%, allowing 75% of the high school graduates in our state not able to participate in the 21st century American economy? We can't allow that to occur. What will happen to our economy if generation after generations, three quarters of the people can't participate in the economy? Well, what'll happen is to run government, we'll have higher and higher taxes on a smaller and smaller uh, group of extremely wealthy individuals. And at some point, the taxes that they pay will convince them that they should take the money that they made in Illinois, using the fruits of the economy that we paid for and built together, and simply relocate to another state and take the uh, enormous wealth that they've amassed and go elsewhere with it. And that is the end of the world economically for our state. That's how it ends. That's how it ends for Illinois. It doesn't have to be like that. I don't know about those estimates, but I know that we can simply mimic the great success that other states have had and knit together a system of community colleges, of highly performing high schools linked to community colleges, which um, have articulation agreements so people can move smoothly into the university setting and prepare themselves to be economically self-sufficient, to be free here in the land of the free. Well, besides those particular issues that Jamie brought up, there's the, the looming issue of dealing with the pension crisis. And no one seems to have a, a good solution to um, ensure that the, the pensions are funded and that the teachers and all the other union members will maintain their pensions. Do you have any thoughts on that? That's a large segment of the voting population who are probably interested in what you have to say. Sure. I, I mean, I believe fundamentally that we need to restore the American dream, the idea of upward mobility. Um, but that American dream, it needs to sit firmly on the rule of law. We can't abandon the rule of law. We see what happens when we abandon the rule of law in the property tax racket, where the value of your house, the value of your commercial building is determined not by the market or its economic value, but instead by some backroom deal handled by a uh, clout-heavy uh, lobbyist wielding campaign checks for ward organizations and the like. We, we can't abandon the rule of law when it comes to our employment practices. People who took jobs with the promise of a pension need to have those pensions honored. That promise needs to be kept. That contract needs to be respected. We, we have no choice. We cannot abandon that and descend collectively with 12 million people into the jungle. That can't happen. Now, how do we pay for them? You say no one's got a good solution. I'd have to push back on that a little bit. I think um, Mayor Emanuel had a pretty good solution to solve many of the pension issues here in the city of Chicago. He went to the legislature, he got bipartisan support in both the House and in the Senate. They passed a bill which would allow him to make the tweaks to the pensions necessary to um, keep them whole and to uh, meet the obligations to everyone who worked for those pensions. And shockingly, on the 58th day of the available 60 days, Bruce Rauner laid on a Friday evening 
vetoes that package. He vetoes it with with um, two days left in, in his time period to provide that veto. He picks up Friday because he knows that the only paper that picks up the veto is like the Tribune on Saturday on the sixth page where nobody reads about it. Rauner needed an issue to run on in 2016. He sees, he sees public policy as a tool of politics instead of seeing politics as a tool to affect public policy. So he vetoes a bill that would have created stability in our city, that would have cost most people very little, that would have calmed the markets, that would have solved huge problems, would have provided a roadmap for the state to mimic the same behavior and fix the pensions there as well. He does that so that he can create a phony issue and in 2018 say to the people of Illinois, I'm going to protect you against Rahm Emanuel and the people in Chicago who are going to steal your money to pay for their pensions. And, it, you know, it's it's a terrible thing to try to divide a state, any state in the United States, and to do it the way that he's doing it is uh, purely one of self-interest and not something that's motivated by doing something good for everyone. Well, how do you talk to those constituents who support Republican Party or Rauner? I mean, you have a populace who supported the, the candidacy of Trump uh, throughout this state. You have a constituency in the south part of the state who supports Rauner and believes uh, these you know, shenanigans that you just talked about, setting, it, setting up a narrative where everyone in the south are going to have to bail out those, those liberal you know, Chicagoans and their um, poorly run pension programs and economies. I mean, it seems like a daunting task in this day when we don't have much discourse like we're having right now about the realities of what's happening with a governor like we have right now. No one comes out and talks about the governor as being this libertarian kind of uh, uh, government slayer that much, right? Uh, except, except for like maybe Madigan. But I'm just wondering how can we convince people that this governor is basically destroying this state? They're going to support him. They're gonna come. They're gonna back him. You're gonna have Trump coming through Springfield with a with a nice uh, stadium tour full of his Trump supporters, help with Rauner, I'm sure. Anyways, well, say this: when when I first moved to Illinois in 1986, I moved from Boston, Massachusetts, to Decatur, and I spent time working for Archer Daniels Midland. They moved me around lots of different sites that they had all over our state. When I first announced for governor, the folks in Southern Illinois, the Southern 20 Democratic chairman were the first to endorse me. I think I, I think I understand the problems that they're facing. And frankly, I think they're the exact same problems that people in our area are facing. They have schools where 92, 95% of the kids who graduate from those high schools graduate where they're not college ready. Um, and, and in those areas, they're very isolated. They often don't have access to a community college that can provide that remedial education. That's the same issue we have up here. We can unite together on that. What everyone wants more than anything else is to keep their children in the communities that they themselves were raised in. They want to be around their kids as they get older. I'm not afraid of Donald Trump. I'm afraid of the next Donald Trump. I'm afraid of creating an economic system that that allows us in the United States to elect somebody worse than him. For many people in our state, they they feel like we've created an economy that is meant to crush them and their families. We've created a political establishment that's meant to exclude them from participation. And we've created a society, a social arrangement, where the only time we ever think of people who live in rural areas is when we watch Saturday Night Live and they become the brunt of the joke. And so last year when they go to vote, they elect Donald Trump. They don't believe that Mexicans are here to sell us drugs. They don't believe that the Muslims are here to bomb us. They don't believe in that rhetoric, but they believe in the notion that the American dream, 
this idea that they were taught when they were young that each generation would do a little bit better, that you could arrive here like the Kennedy family did as an immigrant family and rise from rags to riches, this notion of endless opportunity, that that promise is not being kept. They want that promise kept. They want the American dream to be reality. That's all they want. They don't want anything more. And if we don't restore that American dream and do it quickly, they'll vote for somebody worse than Donald Trump. This week on the Trump Diaries, Ivana keeps her daddy's seat warm at the G20, tensions rise over Korea, Trump conjures the apocalypse in Poland, Trump's White House is found to pay women significantly less, and Junior is caught out in an email accepting help from Russia. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 168, July 6th. Tensions are rising over North Korea following the successful launch of an ICBM missile capable of reaching Alaska. Trump told China on Monday the USA was prepared to go it alone to resolve North Korea's nuclear ambitions. Rex Tillerson said bluntly the USA will not accept a nuclear-armed North. Also, the top general in the region said in blunt terms there was little stopping a war. Self-restraint, which is a choice, is all that separates armistice and war, said General Vincent Brooks. And the pay gap between male and female employees in Trump's White House has trebled. The median female White House employees drawing a salary of $72,650 in 2017, compared to the median male salary of $115,000. A typical female staffer in the White House earns 63.2 cents per $1 earned by a typical male staffer. The 37% gender pay gap in Trump's White House is more than double the 17% gender pay gap nationally. And the USA's top ethics watchdog quit today. Walter Schaub Jr., the director of the Office of Government Ethics, was not expected to be renewed given the Trump administration's hostility to his position. There isn't any much more I could accomplish given the current situation, said Schaub dryly. OGE's recent experiences have made it clear the ethics program needs to be strengthened. And investigators are exploring if Russia colluded with far-right pro-Trump sites during the election in order to spread bogus stories aimed at discrediting Hillary Clinton. A member of the Senate Intelligence Committee said that at least 1,000 paid internet trolls working out of a facility in Russia Russia were pumping anti-Clinton fake news into social media sites during the campaign. The head of Trump's digital team, Brad Parscale, has been asked to appear before the House Intelligence Committee. Day 169, July 7th. Trump flew to Europe today, stopping in Poland, where the government bussed in thousands to ensure a friendly, cheering crowd for his speech. Trump claimed during that speech that Western civilization was at risk of decline, decrying, quote, radical Islamic terrorism and creeping government bureaucracy. Trump also attacked American leaders, and the media in the speech also praised the right-wing government of Poland. Speaking in apocalyptic terms, Trump said, quote, do we have the confidence in our values to defend them at any cost? Do we have the desire and the courage to preserve our civilization in the face of those who would subvert and destroy it? And Trump reportedly asked Vladimir Putin on Russia's meddling in the 2016 election. A Russian spokesman later claimed that Trump accepts Putin's oft-repeated denials that he had anything to do with attempting to swing the 2016 election. Trump and Putin also agreed to a ceasefire in a limited area of Syria being on a Sunday. The move is the latest effort to end the six-year civil war in Russia. And Democratic attorneys general from the 18 states in the District of Columbia filed a lawsuit on Thursday against the Education Department and its secretary, Betsy DeVos, challenging a freezing of rules on student loan debt. Those rules, known as borrower defense, were finalized by the Obama administration after years of negotiation and review and were supposed to take effect on July 1st. And top White House aides have hired public relations staff to support their own agendas instead of using the traditional White House policy and messaging operation. Kellyanne Conway, Steve Bannon, and Jared Kushner all have chiefs of staff, assistants, and PR people working for them in an effort to build up their own brands and policy portfolios. Day 170, July 8th. Trump tweeted, everyone at the G20 summit is talking about why John Podesta wouldn't give the DNC server to the FBI and the CIA. John Podesta did not run the Democratic National Committee. He chaired Clinton's presidential campaign. Podesta fired back with a tweet of his own telling him, quote, get a grip, man. The Russians committed a crime when they stole my emails to help you get elected president. Maybe you might try to find a way to mention that to President Putin. And First Lady Melania Trump was unable to leave her residence in Hamburg, Germany because of protests against the Group of 20 summit. And seven have been arrested after they hung a banner from Trump Tower downtown today in Chicago. The banner reading, Resist, Defend, was hung by activists from Greenpeace. Charges against those are pending. Day 171, July 9th. 
The New York Times is reporting that White House advisors have discussed using CNN as leverage in the AT&T Time Warner merger. Time Warner is CNN's parent company. Trump's Justice Department will decide whether to approve the merger or not. Trump may ask that current CNN head Jeffrey Zucker be removed before he grants approval. And CNN reports that Russian spies have stepped up their intelligence gathering efforts emboldened by the lack of response from both Trump and Obama. It is believed the Russians now have nearly 150 intelligence operatives in the USA. Also, hackers have been targeting nuclear power plants in the United States since May. The report did not indicate whether the attacks were an attempt at espionage or part of a plan to cause destruction. And ICE officers have been told to take action against all undocumented immigrants they encounter while on duty, regardless of their criminal history. The Trump administration and Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly had promised to ramp up enforcements of immigrants who pose a public safety threat. The new guidance goes beyond that promise. And Ted Cruz has called for a clean repeal of the ACA if the Senate bill falls apart. He said the Senate should vote on a narrower bill to simply repeal the law and work on replacement later. In a related story, Republican lawmakers are buying health insurance stocks as they attempt to repeal Obamacare. Representative Mike Conway and Senator James Inhofe have added health insurance companies to their portfolios worth as much as $30,000 and $100,000, respectively. Day 172, July 10th. In a blockbuster story broken by the New York Times, Donald Trump Jr. met with a Kremlin-connected Russian lawyer to acquire dirt about Hillary Clinton in June 2016 at Trump Tower in New York City. On Saturday, Trump Jr. said the meeting was about the issue of U.S. adoptions of Russian children and not the campaign. The meeting, attended by Trump Jr., Paul Manafort, and Jared Kushner, was disclosed when Kushner filed a revised form in order to obtain a security clearance. And facing widespread criticism, Trump backtracked on his push for a U.S.-Russia cybersecurity unit, saying it cannot happen. On Sunday, Trump had tweeted that he and Putin had discussed forming, quote, an impenetrable cybersecurity unit so that election hacking will be guarded. John McCain lit into Trump, noting that Russia were experts in the field, quote, since they are the ones doing the hacking. Day 173, July 11th. The Donald Trump Jr. story deepened today as it was revealed that he was told in an email the Russian government wanted to help the Trump campaign. An email sent to Jr. said the documents, quote, would incriminate Hillary and would be very useful to your father. Within minutes, Trump Jr. replied, if it's what you say, I love it, especially later in the summer. Four days later, Goldstone wrote back promising a meeting with a Russian government attorney. Trump agreed, saying he would bring Paul Manafort and Jared Kushner. And Trump's election commission froze efforts to gather voter data from states as legal challenges are growing. The panel's designated offer, Andrew Kosak, asked state elections officers to hold on submitting any data. Almost every state has already rejected complying with the request, which many called unnecessary and a violation of privacy. And House Speaker Paul Ryan said he will no longer hold public town halls because he, quote, doesn't want to have a situation where we just have a screaming fest, a shouting fest, where people are being bussed in from out of the district to get on TV because they're yelling at somebody. Day 174, July 12th. The Times and The Post are both reporting infighting at the White House over revelations that Donald Trump Jr. was offered compromising material on Hillary Clinton as part of a Russian government effort to aid his father's candidacy. Trump Jr. has retained a lawyer with ties to the mob. Reaction to this story has been swift with even normally reliable right-wing outlets like the New York Post running headlines that say Trump Jr. is an idiot. Investigators are examining if Trump's digital operation helped guide Russia's election meddling. The digital team was partly overseen by Jared Kushner, and the House and Senate Intelligence Committees and the Justice Department are focusing on whether Trump's campaign pointed Russian cyber operatives to certain voting jurisdictions and states that supported Hillary Clinton. In related news, Christopher Wray, Trump's pick to replace James Comey as FBI director, was grilled about the FBI's independence from the White House as investigations proceed against the Trumps on multiple fronts. Wray said he had not been asked for a pledge of loyalty and also, quote, would sure as heck not have offered one. And Senate Republicans plan to offer yet another version of their attempt to repeal and replace Obamacare on Thursday. Prospects for this bill appear to be dim, with several Republican senators calling the bill dead. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has postponed the August recess to allow Republican senators more time to get a bill done. So far, the current Congress has little to show, despite Republicans controlling both houses. And Steve Bannon and Jared Kushner recruited two war profiteers to devise alternative options in Afghanistan in an attempt to counter the Pentagon's plan to send thousands of additional troops. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis declined to include the outside strategies in his review of Afghanistan policy. Trump's approval rating hovers around 38%, according to 538's Metapol. These are the Trump Diaries. Hitting left spoke to Alderman Amaya Pawar about his bid for the Illinois governor's mansion. Pawar spoke about the budget crisis, education, and progressive values in the age of Trump. 
This interview is part of a series of Lumpen interviews held with the 2018 Illinois gubernatorial candidates. Hitting left with the Klonsky brothers airs every Friday at 11 a.m. How are you doing this morning, Alderman? Good, how are you? Uh, now a new bill is going to come up uh, in Springfield, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because we, we, ve we got the veto overturned mm -hmm. on the budget, but uh, schools still aren't able to get their portion of the budget until a new bill is is uh, passed, and uh, the, the governor's threatened to veto that bill, right? Mm -hmm. Am I, do I have it right? Yep. So what's uh, what's going to happen? Do you think are we going to be able to uh, to veto override uh, Rauner's veto on the school bill? I certainly hope so. Look, this is what Governor Rauner does really well. He goes to majority poor white communities in southern and central Illinois and tells them that the reason why they don't get their fair share is because those people in Cook County do, and we know what those means. Um, and what he's able to do successfully is take communities that are also getting inequitable education funding communities that also don't have a wealthy tax base in central and southern Illinois, and make them feel as if Chicago is getting more than their fair share. When the truth is, every school district outside of a few enclaves on the North Shore has to figure out how to spend what they need to spend on public schools. The thing is, let's remember, we have the fifth largest economy in the country. It's a $700 billion GDP, and we're almost dead last in public school spending. So this is really just about money. Well, let me... Uh, let me uh uh, give to you a different take on Senate Bill One. This is the the school uh, the school funding bill, yeah. and uh, and get your response to it because I've looked at the bill and there's two parts of it that that trouble me. Mm -hmm. uh, I know Andy Menar, Senator Menar, has been presenting the, a version of this bill for three years now and has failed to get it uh, to get it passed. Uh, and and because and I think one of the pro one of one of my concerns with it is that it takes the existing uh, uh, inadequate funding dollars from the state. The state doesn't even come close to meeting its constitutional obligations of being the, the, main, the main funder of public schools in the state. And it takes this inadequate amount of money and in the name of equity, uh, re-divides up what's really a cupcake of money when what we, mm -hmm. what we really need is a big old, big old flat cake, uh, right? So there's not nearly enough money. And this bill basically accepts the notion of inadequate funding and says, the way you make it equitable is by taking this, in, in, this inadequate amount of money and redividing it into, into different pieces. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly, what it's done so far is it, it has a, a, a part of it which takes the, the way we deal with money, which you must be familiar with in the city, which is gives money for special education through a flat, to a block grant, mm -hmm. and, t and does that statewide so that there's no dedicated direct funding, for example, special ed teachers. Uh, so th that's kind of a one point, but the bigger point is the question of adequate funding for schools. So as governor, uh, what would you do? As governor, this comes down to money. So the current governor's own reform uh, task force said that we need to spend a minimum $3.5 billion more, likely $7 billion more. So cutting up the same pie differently is no solution. The pie needs to be bigger. So as governor, the main priority, just like I have made at, as an alderman at the local level, made my public schools the starting point of everything I do, at the state level, this has to be about public schools and spending significantly more. And that means raising significantly more. But you're going to be a Democratic governor uh, with a Democratic Speaker of the House mm -hmm. uh, who heads up a Democratic legislature that has taken pride in the fact that even this new budget that they overrode the veto on yesterday, they were able to cut uh, hundreds of millions of dollars from. Uh, does anybody really seriously believe that this legislature is going to going to come up with the kind with eight hundred million dollars over the next the next couple of years for public schools, or tax or tax the wealthy to get that new revenue? Is that is that? A, a, so here's my thought on on the speaker. He's moved significantly to the left. Right? He's letting bills out of committee that I think are very progressive. Now, I don't really care whether he's doing it for self-preservation or whether he's doing it because he believes in these things or some combination of both. What I do think it's important is getting a governor in there who's going to hold him accountable to the stuff that he's let out. And that means it's not just about passing the $15 an hour minimum wage. It's actually saying, look, this, he, he's for the millionaire's tax. You put it on the ballot, right? Well, let's get this done. He's saying more recently that he's for a progressive income tax. All right, well, I'm going to hold you accountable to it. Let's get this done. I am not interested in, in making this uh, about uh, 
I, here's my thought. I have a 16-month-old daughter. I want her to be able to go to public schools. I believe in public schools. And if we're not spending more money in public schools, what are we doing as a state? So I have no problem saying on the record, and I've said this many times, we need a progressive income tax. We need to make sure the wealthy pay their fair share. And I'm fine with if I'm elected to go hard on raising revenue. If that means I don't get reelected four years after that, that's okay. We're talking here with the 47th Ward Alderman, Amaya Poar, uh, who is a candidate, uh, Democratic candidate uh, for, for governor. Um, do you, uh, there are now, I think, six, six or seven candidates uh, running mm-hmm. in the Democratic uh, primary, right? Uh, how does your, how do your positions, not just on education, but in general, how do you, how do you distinguish yourself from the rest of, from the rest of these uh, candidates? Look, because we're having a hard time. My brother and I are having a hard time uh, trying to figure out what the differences are. I know on the main questions that we're concerned with, mm-hmm. education and uh, fight for fifteen and things like that. Everybody's a progressive. Everybody's days. a progressive these days, just like what you're talking about, uh, Madigan. And I think you've moved. I think you've moved uh, kind of leftward in in the last couple of years too, haven't you? I think my record shows that I've worked on issues the same. Yeah. I think I don't think. Look, I get a lot of flack for these voting percentages. I, what I try to tell people is, I won on my own. I knocked on every single door. And then I also promised eight years. Remember that, is I term limited myself. So I have eight years to get things done. And if you look at my record, whether it's passing paid sick leave, raising the minimum wage, the independent budget office, or fighting Ed Burke on the inspector general reforms, you know, I've passed a dozen pieces of legislation. If people expected me to ele- get elected on my own, beat the machine, and then not do anything and constantly be in opposition, then I, you know, I, that's not what I promised I was going to do. Constantly be in opposition to uh, to the mayor, you mean? He's the mayor of the city of Chicago. He stands for a lot of things that I can never agree with. But there are a lot of things I got done by making sure I worked with the people who never supported me. I can tell you the difference in this race is I have never taken a dime from Rahm Emanuel. He's, I've never given him a dime. Mike Madigan has never given me a dime. I've never given him a dime. I've never been endorsed by anybody. I got here on my own. So how how, how do you how do you you're up against uh, at least two billionaires mm-hmm. in the race? Well, three if you count uh, Runner. Uh, so you're not taking money from uh, you're not taking money from the machine to run. <laughs> it's not even like they're offering. It's it. It's not like they're offering it. Uh, you're if you elected if elected you'd be the first uh, Asian American mm-hmm. ever to hold that office or even to win the win a, even to run. I think in the. Yep. In, uh, Take me to the take me up to the day where you win the win this race and and tell me uh, you know where it says uh, greatest upset in in Illinois history and uh, tell me uh, how that happened. What I've done over the last six months, forty plus counties, seven thousand miles. We've got two thousand volunteers across sixty three counties. We're going primarily to places that are red on a map and holding town halls. And talking to people. And what I'm telling them is what I'm about to say here today is I believe that this next election is about the intersection of race, class, and automation. And so we can either fight at the bottom against one another, fight over scraps, fight central Illinois versus southern Illinois versus Chicago, or recognize that every community has the same challenges, which is they've lost good jobs, they want good schools, they want quality health care, they want universal child care white, black, or brown. And so I think the way we pull this thing off is we're showing up in places that went 60-40, 70-30 Trump and talking to voters. And as a person of color, I can tell you that showing up and talking about race and class in a meaningful way speaks to people because I can say we can't ignore institutional racism for black and brown communities. Can't ignore the fact that we need to change the way we police. Can't ignore the fact that redlining and segregation is real. But we've also been laughing at poor white people for a long time. And from a class perspective, that needs to be addressed because the issues that you see in poor black and brown communities are the same things you're seeing in deindustrialized poor white communities. We have a lot more in common, and that's how we win this thing. I'm not interested in running this traditional Democratic campaign, which is you go fish where the fish are. I'm going to do it my way. This is the way I ran in 2011. 
And this is the way I'm going to run today. Well, I, I, first of all, I think that's that's very targeted, and I agree with that. La- this whole last segment that you've talked about, where I, my, I, I kind of sat up was this thing about doing it on your own, that you're a, your own person, because uh, I go back to the to the campaigns uh, in the city when the president of the CTU, Karen Lewis, talked about changing the pol- the need to change the political landscape of the city and the state and the, and the nation. That's part of a, that has to be viewed as part of a of a political movement focused on at least for things that you're doing on on electoral stuff, and so to me, building a movement isn't something that someone does by themselves. It's something mm-hmm. that you're that you're a it's a a broader thing that you're a part of, and so to hear that I'm I'm my own man or I'm doing this on my own is kind of, of a di- is a different take uh, than building than building for for example a progressive electoral movement. Uh, and so when there's a Bernie Sanders campaign or when there's a campaign against mm-hmm. the mayor, I look to see who's part of that movement, not just whether they're, they take a good position or talk about, talk about issues of race and class and the things that, I, that I, I connect to, but whether it's part of a movement. And so I, I'm really asking you that question is that how do you see yourself as part of a progressive political movement, not just as an individual. You may win, you may not win, but what's going to happen after November is that we need something there Mm -hmm. to keep going. Look, when I talked about the 2,000-plus volunteers we have across 60 counties, 85% of those folks are brand new to politics. They've never volunteered for a campaign before. Look, I know where my weaknesses are. I'll be the first one to admit it. Part of the, the, the reason why I've been able to have legislative successes in city council a dozen of them on progressive issues is because oftentimes I work alone. But at the same time, that also hurts me because I know people don't feel like I necessarily work with people all the time. I know where my weaknesses are. What I do bring to the table is a record to show that these are the values that I bring to the table. I've worked on minimum wage. I've worked on paid sick leave, the independent budget office, preserving affordable housing. This is who I am. So to the extent uh, that I need to uh, be more inclusive. That's fine. I've been working on that. Part of this campaign has been forging a new deal, and we're going out and organizing communities. I just know that if it comes down to litmus tests, there is, you know, I'm just not willing to get into a battle between who is the most progressive because I think Daniel Biss is a good person. He's a friend, and so I'm. My campaign will not engage in whisper campaigns and that sort of thing because that's just not who I am. I've never done that. I didn't do that when I ran in 2011. So when I say I'm my own man, my point is I bring my experience to the table. Not everyone likes it. Not everyone likes the way I did it. But I stand on my record. All the negatives and positives. So with that, you, you think you have a legitimate chance to defeat, uh, to win the primary? I think we do. Okay. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have jumped in if I thought uh, we didn't have a chance at winning this thing. Let's talk Democratic Party a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a there was a piece in the New York Times yesterday, uh, written by Mar- uh, Mark Penn, a former uh, Clinton operative, yeah, back, uh, Bill Clinton operative back in the day, and uh, so, uh, someone else I forget who, uh, uh, two Clinton people, and th- th- they're trying to make a case that the uh, it, for the Democratic Party to be successful in the upcoming elections, uh, they've got to move back to the center again. And uh, they've been drifted too far left. And that uh, they give the example of the uh, Clinton administration's support for uh, welfare reform, the crime bill, you know, when all that uh, predator talk was going mm-hmm. on. And they said, that's, that's where we got to get back to again today. And Rom's support for immigration, for uh, <laughs> an end to immigration reform mm-hmm. and uh, deport and increasing deportations mm-hmm. when he advised Bill Clinton to do that. And gun control, yeah. And gun control. Uh, uh, anyway, wh- what do you what do you think about wh- where should the Democratic Party be uh, be headed? Uh, in re- you know, uh, uh, you you weren't a, you weren't a Sanders guy, no, right? So so where do you situate yourself in this uh, in the Democratic Party internal uh, struggle that's been going on for the last uh, well last year Ever. <laughs> forever? But but especially heated up uh, around the Sanders campaign and now. Uh, uh, with, with the uh, you know some, who who uh, who gets blamed for the loss to uh, Trump and all that kind of stuff. Are, you got any take on that? I mean, I think this fundamentally comes down to we have 
an industrial tax code sitting on top of a service-based economy. And what that means is people have lost their jobs. They're not making as much money as they did 15, 20 years ago. And if we don't address that, then it doesn't matter who the candidate is. Look, I, <laughs> the idea that we have to go back to public policy like welfare reform, which was an abomination, which played on the same types of stereotypes that President Reagan talked about, is just unbelievable and tone deaf. The idea that we would move forward on a crime bill that jailed black and brown people for low-level drug offenses is insane. Um, the thing that we have to recognize is this. this. What I'm about to say is nothing original, but it's that when jobs left black and brown communities, primarily industrial operators, and crack moved in and drugs moved in, we jailed black and brown men. We broke up families. We destroyed families. Now that those same types of jobs are leaving predominantly white communities and opiates are moving in, now all of a sudden it's a public health issue. Now, the thing is, it's always been a public health issue. But the underlying issue here is that the economy is changing, has been changing, and we've done nothing to create the jobs as the economy changes. There's another wave of automation that's coming that is frightening to me. So you look at Amazon buying Whole Foods. What do you think they're going to do? They're just going to lay everyone off. So but, Alderman, but Alderman, this all happened, for example, in this city, this all happened under a Democratic, under a Democratic leadership in a state that's as blue as they come. Mm -hmm. And so it seems to me that I, the, the issues you're raising are exactly right, but somebody is responsible. And, and some uh, certain political parties, in this state at least, are responsible for that. Automation doesn't run the, the state. Automation doesn't run this state. No people, people, the Democrats have run this state no for so, years. So the Democrats made it possible for guys like Bruce Rauner to come up. Democrats yes, yeah. and Republicans made it possible for people to elect a demagogue like Donald Trump. It's because neither party has addressed what's happened to people over the last 40 years. So here we are. But now litigating it every step of the way, rather than I'm just saying we don't have time to look backwards. But we had to litigate it when the Democrats... Before, before Bruce Rauner, when the Democrats uh, uh, put forth an unconstitutional bill to, uh, to rob our, our pensions and to diminish our pensions. This, they, was, this, was Pat, this was the pension theft attempt. The unconstitutional pension theft attempt mm -hmm. in this state was done under the authorship of, of uh, uh, John Cullerton and Michael Madigan and Pat Quinn, who you worked who you worked. Whose administration you worked for? Uh, they were the ones who led on the on the on. I on, never worked for Pat Quinn. Oh, I thought you were you were appointed to a position under the Quinn administration. No, I was on a council uh, okay. as an elected official. But in any, uh, I don't blame you for the pension theft. <laughs> uh, but I do blame the Democrats in the state mm -hmm. for attempting to steal public employee uh, uh, pensions. And I, in fact, one of the questions I would ask you is: uh, I don't want to jump. To, you know, it's one of these programs where we're all over the map because. Well, that's what <laughs> when yeah, you're running for governor. That's what the Konsky brothers do. That's what we do. But uh, there's a hundred and thirty billion dollar pension liability that's owed to mm -hmm. the public employees of this state. That not one gubernatorial candidate has been able to tell me, at least, how that that hundred and thirty billion hundred. That's with a B. One hundred and thirty <laughs> billion dollar uh, uh, pension liability is going to be paid for. That's my money, and that's the money of every fan of eight hundred thousand. Uh, families that receive uh, public employee pensions, how that money that was stolen from them over 70 years, mainly under Democratic administrations, is going to be repaid. Do you know how it's going to be repaid? You stabilize the bond rating, raise revenue, re-amortize. I've, uh, I've said that over and over again. That is the only way to do it. Stabilize the bond rating, pass a budget, raise revenue, re-amortize it. What do you mean ra raise revenue from where? I mean, you have to have a progressive income tax. And now, I'm not even talking about waiting for a constitutional amendment. You can raise the rate and up the exemptions today, and that passes constitutional muster. That is a way to get at the progressive income tax right now. Don Harmon's been talking about this, and I believe Rob Martwick in the House. Well, Don Harmon also voted for pension theft. In fact, there's not a, there's a, it's hard to find a Democratic legislator. So I'm in telling you on the record, well, I'll, I'll speak to my record, but I'll also tell you on the record that we owe what we owe. These are, this is a promise, and we will make good on that promise if I'm elected. Number two, I also voted and was a strident supporter of raising property taxes in the city of Chicago, not because I wish there was a more progressive option. I wish the state would put more skin in the game, 
But I ran on this in 2015 for re-election, and I said the idea that we're not raising property taxes is ludicrous because we can't allow people's pension systems to go belly up and by extension allow the city to go belly up. I have always taken a vote to protect pensions. I don't know that everyone in the race can say that. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com.